and welcome back. It's episode 130 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, where we not only encourage parents to bribe their kids' way through the admissions process, we actually require it. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, and of course, recent recipient of Best Supporting Actor in an in-flight security video, and I am joined, as always, by the maverick and Iceman of the conservative legal movement. That one kind of works because, like Tom Cruise, John does all his own stunt work. And like Val Kilmer, Richard has been known to burn colleagues with cigarettes. They are... What? <laughs> they I, mean, I, are... I thought you were going to say, hey, it was great seeing you in that Parasite movie. Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Let me just introduce you guys first. Tell the audience that you are, respectively, Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emmanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, John, you brought this up. We are taping this a couple of days after the Academy Awards aired. And it occurred to me as I was watching it for my sins that we never really talk about movies here with the possible exception of Richard being unsure about what Star Wars is, which is maybe <laughs> the reason we don't talk about movies. But I'm just curious, does, does this play any role in your life? When was the last time that either one of you set foot in a movie theater? The other oh, night. I, I, really? What did you went to a movie theater? I go all the time. We saw 1917, and we saw something else that I can't remember that was pretty good. (laughs) And most importantly, my son is now making his movie in Portland, Oregon, um, with a cast of many stars, which I hope will come out later this year. Really? Can you you tip us a little something about this? Who are these people? It's a terrific story. I read it at least five years ago. I remember that there are many transformations, but I don't remember what they are. But... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He's got a strong cast and very enthusiastic. So I've actually been on set with him. And if there were 80 people who were on the set, there was only one person who was talking in a normal tone of voice. And he had to be told to hush up. I will not ask you who it was because you already know the answer. <laughs> Can we get you a walk on? I, I just love a Richard cameo. Before all is said and done. I, I see, he's an extra. I've seen him in the background of many movies. Well, me and Hitchcock were together in many movies. <laughs> John, what about you? How often are you, you going to the I, movies? I'd like to say that the last time I was in a movie theater was the last time there was a Star Trek movie. I, I, I'm still, I still can't believe Star Trek's been forced off the main screens, and now I have to stream it off of CBS All Access. <laughs> I, I'm protesting the mainstream movie theater industry. Actually, I love I love streaming. I, I pretty much watch everything online now. I don't really go. I, I haven't seen movie theater probably two or three years. Really? Did, did, did you see, I mean, you brought this up. This, I'm not stereotyping, John. Did you see Parasite? Which one best? No, I got, it's a I Korean mean, like, film. People keep saying, I saw you in the movie. I saw you in this movie. I saw you in that movie all the time. I don't uh, even So I haven't you. seen Parasite, but I'm sure it's going to be on free. But when I heard the plot, I was like, you know, Every Korean movie is like that. So I do watch some Korean movies on streaming. Like if you go on to Amazon Prime, every like you can pay to have your own movies put on Amazon Prime. So like there's a huge library of Korean movies. They're all about resentment and envy over inequality. 
Worse than here. Worse than the United States. Like yes. All the movies are about inequality. I find it boring. Yes. Look, I have another statement. I will not see that movie. I mean, one of my family members has seen it and said, you will not enjoy it. But also, one of the things that always bothers me is you get a bunch of movie directors whose expertise lies in other areas who seem to think that inequality of wealth is the greatest problem in the world. And then you ask the first counterexample. You could get perfect equality if everybody starves. You prefer that with massive inequality where everybody prospers. All right, fellas. Well, this episode, we finally get to wrap up the impeachment talk, um, at least until this time next year when Bernie Sanders is in the dock. But let's dispose of the last couple of bits of business that we haven't discussed on the show yet that have happened since the last time we were together. There was a bunch of drama in the last week of this trial over whether the Senate was going to call additional witnesses. This driven primarily by the revelation that in John Bolton's upcoming book, he is going to say that President Trump made explicit to him that the holdup of the aid to Ukraine was tied to an effort to get them to investigate Hunter Biden. Uh, Witnesses did not get called because in the end, Susan Collins and Mitt Romney were the only Republican senators who voted for it. That wasn't enough. Uh, John, this seems like a pretty big revelation in the Bolton manuscript. What do you make of the Senate opting not to call any witnesses? Well, I didn't think actually there would be much harm if there were some witnesses like John Bolton on one side and, uh, say, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden on the other side. But I think one way to understand it as a constitutional matter, and I think this is what Lamar Alexander said when explaining his vote, was that the Republican senators who voted to acquit they assumed that Trump had did it. They assumed Trump had asked for an investigation, and they assumed that Trump had withheld foreign aid. Maybe he didn't mention it in the July 25th phone call, but he did block it in some way or delay it, and then it was released in the end. And so if you believe that there was this quid pro quo, there was this pressure, you don't need to hear more facts. Bolton is actually not testifying to anything they didn't already know. And what the Senate's acquittal means, at least to me, and I think to those senators, was given the facts as pled by the House impeachment managers were true, it just didn't meet the legal standard for impeachment. And here I think, uh, and this was argument uh, I think we were talking about last time, uh, to me it doesn't just have to be treason, bribery, or some kind of crime or abuse of power. It has to be a crime or abuse of power that's the same level of seriousness as treason and bribery. And there you saw the senators said this was bad, this was inappropriate, maybe it was abusive, but this is not a serious threat to the health of the nation, and so we're going to quit. Richard, on, on the point that John just made, Mitt Romney was the sole Republican senator to vote for conviction, and he only did so on one of the charges, abuse of power, not obstruction of Congress. And here's part of his rationale, directly responsive to what John was just saying that I'd like you to respond to, Richard. I'm going to read you the quote. Okay. The historic meaning of the words high crimes and misdemeanors, the writings of the founders, and my own reasoned judgment convinced me that a president can indeed commit acts against the public trust that are so egregious that while they're not statutory crimes, they would demand removal from office. To maintain that the lack of a codified and comprehensive list of all the outrageous acts that a president might conceivably commit renders Congress powerless to remove such a president defies reason. Close quote. What do you make of that? 
I think he's wrong. I mean, uh, let's go back to the first thing. It says other high crimes and misdemeanors. The word other is basically an effort to do exactly what he says this Constitution ought to do, which is to say we don't have a particular list and it's going to be a constitutional judgment as what counts as a high crime or misdemeanor. Uh, And if you could get yourself on that particular list, then you should be convicted. Uh, But if it turns out that there's no offense that has been committed or identified, it doesn't even have to be a statutory offense. If you, for example, had a president who committed massive extortion against his political enemies and there was no crime of extortion on the statute book, I still think under the Constitution you could remove the president. Uh, This particular case, however, runs into very serious problems. Uh, First of all, with respect to the uh, July 25th taping, The only way in which you can make this thing into an impeachable offense is to read into it all sorts of subtext, which is not there. And generally speaking, when you're dealing with a critical uh, criminal trial, uh, the inferences with respect to gaps have to be so compelling that you can't ignore them. And in this particular case, there are many innocent explanations. So then you have to start looking at the background. And even when you start to describe this case, you note first that this was an Obama policy. You note that second, that it turns out there were serious reasons to worry about this. Uh, having to do with national security on the one hand and with the dangers of giving lethal weaponry to the Ukrainians on the other that hold everybody up. It turns out this was not a request to, quote, get dirt on uh, Biden. It was a request to essentially, at this particular point, look into a transaction. And so let me give you the definition of what bribery is as it applies to this particular case. And you can see why this was not unreasonable. There is no question uh, that if it turned out that Burisma had paid the president directly a large sum of money in an effort to influence policy, that would climb, count as a bribe, whether or not the money had its intended purposes or not. He just should not take it. Now, suppose what you do is you say, I'm not going to give the money to you, Joe. I'm going to give it to your little son, Hunter. Well, at that particular point, it's still a bribe uh, because what you're doing is you're making a gift to somebody who's closely affiliated with somebody in a position of power, and the bribery laws would be useful if this kind of circumvention were able to succeed. Second thing, he says, well, we didn't just give him a bribe. We paid him service. But we know very well that when you're dealing with the law of bribery, that if, in fact, you buy something for somebody at $1,000 when it's worth $10, there's a $999 bribe. So whenever you're worried about criminal convictions, you can't take the contractual position that the value of the property is to be determined by the parties and not by the law. You are looking to see whether or not there's a next gift. Uh, There is, under this definition, a credible case that there was constitutional bribery uh, with respect to this particular transaction. So now it turns out the president at least has some legitimate motive. The moment you get into these mixed motive cases, it is not an impeachable offense, and so you should just drop it. If you actually go back and you look at what Hamilton said, I reread it finally, uh, 65-66, and I read the law professor's letter on this. The law professors misquote the document by making it appear that treason is the one listed thing. They ignore bribery and the rest of it. And when you start looking at Hamilton, what's so striking about it is he doesn't even deal with what counts as a other high crime or misdemeanor. The only questions that he deals with are whether or not this is something which should be tried by the Senate uh, when it turns out that prosecuted by the House instead of, say, by being heard by the Supreme Court and so forth. So I think even under his own standard, um, he really does not get there. Um, And this is independent of the ultimate decision. That is, my view is you don't get there even if they decided to continue to hold up the aid. So I think this thing from beginning to end uh, was just a huge mistake in judgment. 
judgment, and I refer back to what Nancy Pelosi and Gerald Narodler said in 1998, if you want to get somebody for conviction, you want the law to be very clear, you want the evidence to be overwhelming, and you want the thing to be bipartisan. And none of those conditions were satisfied in this particular case. And so given the fact that the Biden conduct actually was worthy of condemnation and certainly worthy of examination, it seems to me that you cannot ignore that fact and simply treat the president as going on a hunting expedition. He did not say, you heard this guy, Joe Biden, uh, when he went on a cruise ship in the Ukraine, uh, tell me, uh, just what did he do? It wasn't that. It was more focused on that. And I think that focus saves us from an impeachable offense. John, there was a lot of adjective in the days after the acquittal about the president purging the people in his administration that had been involved in testimony. So Lieutenant Colonel Vinman on the National Security Council, in addition to his twin brother, both removed from that body. Gordon Sondland, our ambassador to the EU, recalled from his post. And this was criticized in the press as an ugly form of retribution. But the alternative is hard to imagine, too. These people continuing to serve in the administration after everything that happened. Were you at all scandalized by those firings? No, in fact, I would have expected it to happen, uh, particularly in the White House. Now, maybe people could get more upset if the president actually had fired uh, Vinmen or his brother from the government entirely. But my my understanding from the news reports is that they're just being reassigned out of the White House. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, the president should have people in the White House whom he uh, trusts and who he expects some loyalty from. Uh the place for people who are going to be in the civil service or out in the agencies, which is where these people are being returned. With Sondland, I think you just have a guy uh, put aside that he testified against the president who clearly shouldn't be an ambassador. I mean, he's sort of, um, even if you believed what the Democrats believed, you don't want someone like that being an ambassador who's clearly uh, loosey-goosey with the facts. I don't know if that's a technical legal term like it certainly is <laughs> but, but he, you know this is a fellow who changed his story several times who uh you know seemed to be engaging in all kinds of schemes that were outside his jurisdiction uh, you know I, I and presidents have the full constitutional authority to fire ambassadors uh, whenever they want for any reason or for actually for no reason at all Look, I mean, one of the things that's so ironic in this particular case is the constant democratic trope that Trump is the greatest threat to democracy that we've ever had. Well, in this particular case, it turns out that when you have rogue testimony, change stuff like this, uh, that to me is a threat to democracy. Uh, bringing an impeachment action, which is in fact not appropriate, is a threat to democracy. In particular, uh, the long-term implications of the second article of impeachment, namely that the president doesn't get to plead executive privilege against the congressional um, request for documents, and if he does try to plead it, it becomes an impeachable offense, is an effort to completely upset the current system and the way in which it operates and should be heartily discouraged. And clearly the greatest threat to democracy that we've seen in the last several years is the entire campaign in 2016 in order to discredit Trump by using the FBI against its stated purposes. So, I mean, look, I think the president is irascible. I think the president often says things that he regrets to say. 
say. Uh, but impeachment is not essentially bad taste. It's bad acts that are involved here. And I find myself in this very strange position of being strongly in favor of his resignation in 2017, not because of the constitutional matters, but because of his behavioral tendencies. And now, given the Democratic assault on him, you can't possibly wish that on you. You have to essentially now go on to the legal side of this. And the really ironic thing is indignant Democrats can be wrong and a basically impossible president can turn out to be right. Uh, he's not perfect, the most annoying word in the English language when it comes from his mouth. Uh, but there's a big deal of difference. You may not be perfect, but you're certainly not going to be impeachable because you're imperfect. And the behavior on the other side, I think, has been really, really quite reprehensible. I, I make a lot of enemies inside the academy by saying all of this stuff. Uh, but this is, to me, not the way in which business ought to be done. Because before fact, this, you were so popular. <laughs> well, I, no, it's not popular. No, but one of the things that you really find, by the way, which I've never seen happen before is, you know, people come up or they tell you indirectly, well, I won't have lunch with this man because he's defended, you know, Trump on the impeachment charges. Are you serious? I'm serious. Really? People won't have lunch with you now because you defended Trump? See how much more free time you have now? No, I mean, some people, of course, <laughs> it's the opposite thing, but no, I, I have never seen uh, the line so bitter and so decisive. Uh, it, it, remember, I'm living on the Upper West Side of New York, which is not a Trump haven uh, to some extent, but they're really very, very indignant about all of this and extremely impatient with arguments that come down from the from the other side. And I think, in effect, that the sort of wall of intolerance that has come over these kinds of things, uh, then reciprocated by Trump, has led to a very bad position in this case. But I don't regard the Democrats as being blameless with respect to all of this. There are many things that the president has done that I find quite reprehensible and slightly hysterical and so forth. Uh, but I think the entreatment charges were a mistake from start to finish. All right. Well, now we have a brand new Trump legal controversy to attend to, which is uh, Roger Stone, the president's former associate, which regardless of your politics, we should stipulate all around nutshell. <laughs> Roger Stone had reached the sentencing phase of his trial. Just to review, he had been found guilty of lying to Congress about his attempts to communicate with WikiLeaks uh, for making false statements. And the big one in terms of the sentencing consequences is that he'd also been convicted on a witness tampering account. So on Monday, two days prior to when we were recording this, the DOJ asked for a seven to nine year sentence for Stone. And that did not go down well with the president. He went on Twitter. He called it a miscarriage of justice. He called it a horrible and very unfair situation. And then yesterday, the Justice Department reverses itself, says, well, we don't really have a preference at all for how long he serves. And this seems to have been over the objections of most of the professional staff. So four of the prosecutors on the case withdrew from it, including an assistant U.S. attorney who also resigned from his job. John, this is all getting reported basically one way in the press. Is there a plausible interpretation of this that doesn't look like pretty deep impropriety from the president? Well, as a there's a constitutional dimension, and then there's just practice. So it's a constitutional matter. Of course the president can do this. Uh, Article 2 says the president is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Uh, the president is ultimately responsible for executing the laws. 
everybody who works at the Justice Department is assisting the president in carrying out that constitutional function. So the president can decide whether to bring prosecutions, whether to drop them, what to argue, what sentences to seek. Uh, you know, now that the federal government and uh, federal criminal law is so vast, we don't expect presidents to do it. But in our history, presidents have done it. You talk about President Lincoln, President Jefferson, President Washington, they all became very personally involved with prosecutions and how to respond to courts and judges. Uh, as a matter of practice, however, uh, ever since Watergate, there was this, has been this idea that there should be an arm's length between the Justice Department and its management of criminal matters and the White House. In fact, it's uh, very difficult. Uh, there's a number of rules that are designed to prevent the, the White House, White House officials from talking to uh, the Justice Department about criminal cases. Uh, but that is all just a matter of tradition and practice. And so I, I think it's perfectly appropriate for the president to say we should seek a lesser sentence. They could even, President Trump could even say we should just drop the charges against Stone. Now, he hasn't. That's, that, that's where I question some of the critics. Uh, Trump actually is saying all these things about on Twitter about how bad this prosecution is against Roger Stone. On the other hand, he has let the prosecution go forward. He easily could have ordered the prosecutors to drop it. He could still issue Stone a pardon, I suppose, even after it's over. Um, but instead, Trump has allowed the thing to go forward. He's just uh, told his people to seek a, a lower sentence. Now, on the sentence itself, I think I read they were asking for a range of seven to nine years. Right. I haven't looked at the sentencing guidelines. That does seem a little high to me for uh, lying to Congress. Uh, put aside just whether anyone tells the truth in Congress, but suppose he was lying to Congress. <laughs> um, you know, I'm thinking about earlier cases like um, uh, and Admiral Poindexter, for example, in a wrong contract. I'm pretty sure he was not sentenced uh, to nine years. I'm pretty sure he didn't serve nine years. I, I, be I believe the, the bulk of the time on the, the sentencing recommendation had to do with the witness tampering charge. Ah, ah well, that is now, now I have to say when it comes to uh, these what they call process crimes, when there are people who try to interfere with the FBI and investigations, the Justice Department often does try to seek maximum sentences because to set an example. Otherwise, people won't cooperate and will continue to try to interfere with investigations. So I could see where they ask for that range. It does seem a little high, though, nonetheless. Richard, what's your reaction? Well, I mean, the first thing is I find the whole thing completely distasteful because this came out of the Mueller investigation. And generally speaking, I'm much more sympathetic when you start to prosecute crimes that took place prior to and independent of the investigation, rather than trying to prosecute for crimes that come out of the investigation itself, lying to Congress, lying to the FBI, lying to this person or to that person. And so uh, my view about that is, in general, I am disposed against the government rather than for the government because I've regarded it as you know, the entire Mueller investigation from start to finish as a serious overreach of power. The second point is, I do not actually know what it means to talk about witness tampering in this particular case. Um, the word tamperer could mean uh, you're going to threaten muscle on a particular guy if he testifies against you, or it could be that you sort of ran into him and says, I really hope when you give this testimony, it's not going to be so harsh against me, which is, I think, probably inappropriate, but I don't think it lies to the same level of indignity. And so I would want to know exactly a good deal more about that. I gather, but I can't confirm, that the witness himself said this was not a really big deal, and maybe that ought to influence the outcome. 
And the other thing I would want to know is just who are these career prosecutors? Um, are they people who are independent of politics? Are they strong Obama supporters, strong Trump supporters? Uh, would that start to make a difference? So I think my bottom line about this is the president should not be tweeting on these things. But I do think it's appropriate that if Barr wanted to review this stuff in light of past practice and so forth, it would be perfectly permissible to say that we really want this. So I'm not even sure what they're protesting, um, whether it's the Trump interference or whether it's the reduction in sentence. As usual, I think his behavior is, is shall we say, a little bit boorish under these circumstances and ought not to be tolerated. But I think if you're trying to do the question of, is this sentence right relative to this offense? Nine years strikes me the kind of sentence that you impose for major sorts of felonies that you have today. And that number strikes me as rather high, even with the tampering built in there. Um, but I think it would be wrong to let somebody off if, in fact, you think the trial was run in the correct fashion. I think that Trump's matchless artistry and the way in which he uses the twittering machine gets him into more trouble than it should. I think, in fact, the correct resolution would be to have internal influences talk this thing out in the Justice Department, probably knocked down the request for a couple of years. The judge, by the way, is not bound by anybody. And one of the real risks that Trump runs is she could be sufficiently angry after all this thing has come to pass that the sentence actually gets heavier because what you're doing is you're taking this poor guy's stone and punishing him for the indelicacies associated with the White House. This is a standard Trump problem. Um, when the guy is ahead, he always finds a way to make his life more difficult than it ought to be. Can I just throw in one thing about Richard mentioned about the judge? The thing that really I think is silly are people who are worried about the judge being intimidated by President Trump. I, the judge has got lifetime tenure. The judge has, can't salary can't be reduced. The judge can only be removed by impeachment, and that's not going to happen. I, I, I always find these uh, criticisms of presidents who criticize judges to be silly. These overwrought worries about judicial independence. I, I just don't take them seriously. I mean, really, the uh, last time there was a threat to judicial independence was a Democratic president who pack, tried to pack the Supreme Court or uh, President Obama, who talked about retaliating against the Supreme Court if it went the wrong way on Obamacare, or current Democratic presidential candidates who are talking about expanding the Supreme Court to 15 justices because they don't like the decisions. I don't really, I, I think all of this about Trump threatening judges is real. Is, I think it's silly. And it's not just Democrats who are worried about it. I mean, you see John Roberts, right, said, uh, oh, there's no Obama judges, there's no Bush judges, they're just judges. By the way, I will say this. I thought his response, that is Chief Justice Roberts' response uh, to Charles Schumer's statement that you should take a more aggressive stance in this hearing, was one of the most powerful, decent, and sensible responses that I've seen in a very, very long time. Um, he did exactly the right thing. He was clearly prepared. He knew it was coming. And again, I regard you know the Schumer request in that particular case as an effort to try to upset historical balances in a dangerous way. And I thought the Chief Justice who's always been an institutionalist, really did cover himself with glory in that particular exchange. By the he, way, was only, he was the only one who came out of impeachment better off, or at least even, than before. Oh, much mean, everyone, everyone else came, I mean, off, came off looking worse. But I, mean, I, think I think one okay. of the reasons why Elizabeth <laughs> Warren is in free fall was that utterly indecorous question that she asked, saying, look, will you please read aloud the question about whether or not this proceeding is done right or does it cast lasting shame on the Supreme Court and its chief justice? And he reads it out with a straight face. Um, it shows the kind of pettiness of political parties. And I think, in fact, that's one of the things that turned people away from her. 
Just before we move on, last note on this, Richard, you raised the question about what exactly the witness tampering allegations look like. So from the AP story at the time, this all had to do with the guy that was uh, Roger Stone's intermediary yeah, with WikiLeaks. This radio show, weird. Yeah, a, a, a radio <laughs> show so comedian. <laughs> and he, t- he told him, Stone told him to, quote, stonewall it and plead the fifth. Uh, he made a reference to a godfather character who lied before Congress and the, <laughs> the weirdest Dude, part of it. Tan- he, Tony Pantangelo. Yes. And yeah, he, Pantangeli, and, sorry. And Stone also threatened his this guy's therapy dog, Bianca, because of because of course, <laughs> saying he was quote going to take that dog away from you. So Troy was taking notes during this whole thing. He's like, well, well I never thought of the therapy. I, I'm glad, I, look, I mean, I think I'm going to go down from, from seven to nine to three to five. Okay. Well, at uh, this, I mean, point, this is not the kind of intimidation that I would think would be uh, truly dangerous. I mean, if in fact, I mean, that's the serious question. Is it witness tampering to tell somebody who's at risk? I know you're at risk and I'm at risk and I think you want to take the Fifth Amendment. Does that count as witness tampering? John? I don't think it's not witness tampering to say you should think about invoking your constitutional rights. Well, I mean, that's the point. Is, uh, I mean, the no, thing but, that, I mean, he did the other stuff, that, too. <laughs> the thing that Stone should clearly be serving time for is the, the Richard Nixon back tattoo, obviously. And if you're going to put him away, that's what you put him away for. All right. All right. So, second half I've of asked show. around and no one is willing to do that one again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get we get to move now from the above the fold stuff to stuff that's a little more interesting. I, I want to turn you guys now to what is definitely my favorite Supreme Court case of the term, maybe of all time. So we're going to get a decision about faithless electors. This is when members of the Electoral College don't vote as they're pledged to. And this stems from two cases from the last presidential cycle, one out of Washington State, one out of Colorado, slightly different facts. In Washington, three of their electors in 2016 cast their vote for Colin Powell rather than for Hillary or Trump. State fines them $1,000 each for that. And then in Colorado, you had an elector who wanted to vote for John Kasich rather than Hillary Clinton. And the state removed and replaced him. And apparently a couple of other members from Colorado wanted to do something similar but didn't because they didn't want to get removed. And the question here is what recourse, if any, a state has against electors who don't vote the way they say they're going to vote. And this raises a really interesting question because modern-day electors are mainly just transmission mechanisms. You win the popular vote in a state. They confer all the electoral votes on you, with the exception of Maine and Nebraska, which break it out by congressional district. So if from the start you had had the system that we have today, you almost certainly wouldn't have created electors because you don't really need people to do this. It's a vestige of the original design of the Electoral College when these were actually thought of as roles that would come with a lot more discretion in picking the president. But given that the Constitution was designed for that discretionary system, do the states have a good legal argument, John, that they can constrain these people? It's interesting. I think that the states will lose in the end, but it's a, quite a complicated question. And it has to do with the issues that actually rose at the very beginning of the country, which is if you're a federal officer or a federal agency, can states regulate you? Uh, so think about the great case McCullough versus Maryland, the case of the bank, the, whether the National Bank was constitutional. That was really started out factually as a case of whether Maryland could, the state of Maryland could oppose a tax on the operation of the bank inside its states. Now, the problem was the state tried to punish the bank and single it out with a unique tax, not like a sales tax or a general income tax. Now, look, 
when I was in the federal government, I was constantly trying not to pay taxes, but it didn't work. So I can tell you that the state... <laughs> when you were in the federal government, <laughs> as if it was a discrete period of time that this behavior went on. <laughs> That's right. So uh, the, 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 I think the leading and most recent case, interestingly, is the term limits case from 1995, where uh, the states tried to limit who could appear on the ballot. Right? They tried to say, if you've been in office in the federal government so many years, you can't appear on our ballot. And the Supreme Court issued a broad opinion. I, I actually didn't agree with it at the time, but the opinion basically said, if you're a federal official, states can't regulate you. And the, one of the examples the court gave was senators. States send, send, pick, you know, state legislatures, once used to pick senators, send them to Washington. Could states recall senators? Could states instruct the senators how to vote? And that did happen in the beginning of the country. And the Supreme Court said, no, state law can't regulate federal officers in the execution of their duty. And if that's true, then it seems to me the uh, 10th Circuit, the Colorado federal court here, uh, there's two courts, Colorado and then the Washington Supreme Court. The Colorado court, the 10th Circuit, the Colorado-based court held that uh, Colorado couldn't punish electors. And I think that's the right outcome given McCullough given the term limits case, and that the Washington state decision, which was which allowed the fining of those electors, I think has got to be wrong. Um, I disagree. Oh, um, <laughs> go on. explain why it is that I disagree. Okay, first of all, um, this is a very complicated question because it involves an interaction between the original Constitution on the one hand and what I like to call the prescriptive Constitution on the other. Uh, when they decided originally to have an electoral college, uh, the obvious parallel was to the College of Cardinals in selecting a pope, and the obvious intention was that this was supposed to be a deliberative body. Uh, the moment you started to put this thing into practice, you realize that this would deliver the body would be a runaway body, and that essentially independent electors could do whatever they wanted. There'd be no external standards to this. So essentially what happened is people then decided to have an arrangement where they would be pledged electors, uh, which would be bound and they would have no discretion. Uh, so Troy said in the beginning, they are basically counters in beans. Uh, that system has served us pretty well for close to 200 years, and actually over 200 years. And the issue is whether or not a state is entitled to keep it. And I think the answer is if the Constitution, as amended by this kind of practice, has been strictly in favor of that, it seems to me that to allow a state to undo this stuff completely changes the fabric of the constitutional deliberation. So uh, that is, if these guys can start to be independent. And unlike the Senate situation, what happens is we do have a provision which says that the states are responsible for choosing the people who will be the electors. Well, it seems to me that if they're responsible for these people and they can choose them, they could also, by virtue of their things, instruct them on the way in which they behave. There's a case called Ray, which I read somewhere, uh, which says, yes, you know, you certainly can do that, leaving over the question of what they do in the event of breach. But this is a classic case where there is a breach of a clear obligation. Money damages don't do the job. What you should do is you should be entitled to get specific performance. And so I think, in effect, you can get an order for these guys to do what they want to do, whether they want to do it or not. Because it's only three guys in this case. But if it turns out you get 350 people doing this and they get together at some meeting, um, maybe Nancy Pelosi will become president because that's the way in which they do it. Remember, there's absolutely no limitation 
that people have gone through the primaries, put themselves on the ballot, be chosen. Because if you can do it with Colin Powell, you can do it with pretty much anybody. And I think, in effect, when you have stable institutions like this, which last for an extremely long period of time, uh, it's an enormous burden on anybody who wants to essentially change it back to a system which was rejected for very powerful reasons um, by this accumulated practice. So uh, the Constitution is not just an originalist interpretive doctrine. It has always been subject to that. And people say, well, do you really mean that? I said, well, sure, because I can give you position after position in the original Constitution, which if faithfully followed today would make the Constitution utterly unrecognizable to anybody. The first decision to go would be judicial supremacy, because Marbury and Madison is wrong to the extent that it claims that. The second thing, it would be incorrect to have federal review of state judgments that invalidate the federal laws. Uh, Section 25 of the Judiciary Act is clearly unconstitutional as an original matter. Corporations could never have a lawsuit in federal court because they're not citizens except by silly stipulations and all the rest of that stuff. So this is another one of these cases. If you really want to make a major constitutional shift of epic proportions, uh, you better do it by constitutional amendment. You can't allow it to be done by unilateral decisions of individuals. So I think the states are absolutely within their limits to do that. And I would go so far as to say if somebody wants to announce that he's going to deviate from the chosen position, you then put somebody else in there. Um, so I think any sanctions you want to put on these guys are perfectly appropriate. Why is that? Because it doesn't take a great genius to say, if I'm a sworn elector for President Trump, I better vote for him and vice versa for whom the Democratic candidate ought to be. So I think this thing is dangerous. I think it's ominous. I think if you're trying to talk about the way in which you upset our settled traditions of democracy, this is it. The arguments that come on the other side are always arguments to the effect that we want to make these things more democratic than they were. Well, we don't want to make them more democratic than they were. What we want to do is to understand that the dangers of popular democracy and to recognize that the Constitution treats limitations on popular majorities not as a bug, not as an error, but as an essential feature to preserve the stability. Uh, if people want to eliminate the Electoral College, and I'm very much against that, I think it ought to be done in the proper way. I don't think it ought to be undermined in this kind of surreptitious and sneaky way. So related to the points that Richard was just making, John, America is a much more democratic country today than it was when it was founded. And when people say that, they're usually talking about expanding the franchise, about blacks getting the right to vote, women getting the right to vote. But I'm talking more at an institutional level. You look at the constitutional design of the country originally, and the House was the only real democratic institution. Members of the Senate, as you guys have mentioned, were chosen by the state legislatures. The choice for the presidency was originally left to this much more discretionary electoral college. Supreme Court mostly chosen along the same lines that it is today. And it is interesting. Originalists spend a lot of time celebrating the genius of the founders, but there aren't a ton of them who are loudly bemoaning the fact that we now directly elect senators and that a small coterie of our betters don't get to choose the president. Should we conclude from that that the founders were just wrong about that stuff? Uh, no, well— Look, the founders uh, in the original Constitution made obvious compromises, which didn't advance their goals. I I do agree. Uh, so to take a lot of there are a lot of examples. The House and the Senate. Uh, nobody uh, wanted to have both. They were just uh, the Constitutional Convention was divided, and so in order to get the small states like Delaware to agree, we, uh, the majority had to agree to a Senate. Uh, the Senate actually, as a representative of states, is probably the most anti-democratic feature of the Constitution because. 
uh, almost, not not just because it has half the legislative power, but also to do treaties, appointments, constitutional amendments, everything of significance, uh, trying and removing presidents, all runs through uh, the Senate. And that's just an obvious compromise. You know, Hamilton, Madison, uh, the uh, James Wilson, the prime motivators behind uh, the Constitution's features that we have today, all didn't want to have a Senate. Um, but I will, I will say this. So it's a mixture of democracy and anti-democratic features. Richard's completely right. The odd thing, and, I, and I'm certainly not one of those people, I think, like Richard, who's trying to push for ever greater democracy. Uh, in fact, the Constitution... Uh, historians think was a reaction against excess democracy during the revolution. Uh, it was a fancy uh, historical phrase. It was a Thermidorian reaction to try to tamp down democracy. I don't know if that plays out quite right in this case, because the interesting thing is, and this is, I, this is where I disagree with Richard, is the faithful electors, the ones who say, I promise to vote for Trump or Clinton or Bernie Sanders, perhaps, and I am willing, and, and the states who find them for refusing to uh, carry out those promises, that's more democratic. I think that's more in keeping with your view, Troy, that there have been changes to the Constitution making it more and more democratic. And actually, the Electoral College as originally envisioned was supposed to be less democratic. Right? If you think there's too much democracy, you want to have more reason and deliberation protect individual rights more, you should actually be in favor of the Electoral College as originally conceived, because as originally conceived, that body might be responsive somewhat to majoritarian democracy. But the idea was you would gather together this assembly of leading people and they would sit down and pick the president. And if they couldn't agree, it would go to the House, but where every state, where every delegation from each state had one vote. So it was really like the states picking the president. So I, I actually would think Richard would like faithless exec, uh, faithless electors. I don't like faithless would... anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll never make it in Atlantic City and Vegas, Richard. But you, you, you would expect there to be, you would you would want there to be faithless exec, people who are not going to feel their job is to represent the pure democratic vote. Well, they don't take the job if they don't want the terms. Well, the danger, John, is that you could get these people together in a sufficient frenzy. Uh, let's suppose there's been some serious reversal that has taken place after the votes were cast, and they could decide to choose unanimously somebody who is not on the ballot by either party. I think, in effect, if you want to basically make sure that the, quote, will of the people is done in choosing the electors, you can't let them undermine it by subsequent decisions. And, you know, the reason why the College of Cardinals works and the Electoral College did not work is the Cardinals represent nobody but themselves. They have no fiduciary duties to larger audiences. But I think anybody who essentially is elected, uh, somebody who's agreed to pledge themselves to Trump or to Sanders, does have a fiduciary duty, and I don't think that you should allow them to breach it. So I'm not even talking about just damages and criminal sentences. I think the appropriate situation, given the new situation, is to say that they are literally bound to do so, and if they were to cast their ballot in some other way, the state could enforce the situation against them to force them to reverse the ballot. This is a case where you need specific performance. It's not enough to say, okay, what happens is all these electors decide to vote for X, and the total consequence of that is they have to pay amongst themselves fines that total to about $500,000. That is not, for me, the way in which a democratic or any sensible
municipal polity runs. If you wish to have influence at the citizenship level, uh, you have to limit the discretion the second time down. This is not like a board of directors where what you have to do is to decide how you implement a strategic plan where discretion is built into the case. This is a case where you pick one name or another name. You do not need decisions in discretion in order to check a box. All right, boys. So some new developments on the immigration front, especially as it relates to sanctuary cities. Our listeners may remember, we talked about this at the time, that earlier in the Trump administration, there was an effort from the administration to withhold funding from sanctuary cities. That has not done very well in the courts. And they're changing tack now. So earlier this week, Attorney General Barr announced the Justice Department is suing the state of New Jersey and King County, Washington, which is where Seattle is, over their non-cooperation with federal officials on illegal immigration. So in New Jersey, this is over the fact that the state limits the amount of information it'll share with federal authorities on illegal immigrants who are living there. Uh, In King County, this is about the fact that they prohibit deportation flights from using their airport. And this is all on the heels of another suit that the department launched against California, which was over their prohibition on for-profit detention centers. Uh, Richard, the administration's argument in all these cases is that immigration enforcement is properly a federal concern, that states or cities or counties should not be able to obstruct their ability to do their job there. How good of a shot do you think that argument is going to have in court? My view is the federal government ought to win these cases and should win them cleanly. Um, you cannot run a sensible country on immigration without having a uniform policy. And if people say, well, you can't fly out of this place or you can't get information from these people or you can't look at driver's licenses and so forth, what it does is it necessarily subverts the situation. So it seems to me in order for the states to resist, they have to find some particular peg of constitutional significance that overcomes this. Uh, and I think in effect that they cannot do that in these particular kinds of cases. So my view about this is that you cannot unilaterally in the state defect from a federal policy. What you have to do is to win some elections and then get the thing to go in the opposite direction. And so if it put it in the opposite way, if it turned out you had an Obama-like administration and they decided not to enforce criminal law in certain kinds of areas, if it turns out that's within their purview, then I don't think any hardline state could come along and say, we wish to arrest people for violations of the federal law, even though the federal government will not want to arrest them itself. Uh, so this, again, is, is part of the progressive movement, uh, which in every particular case wants to sort of destabilize uh, existing constitutional arrangements in order to advance a particular agenda. I'm against it when they do it, and I'm against it when it turns out that the Trump administration wants to do it. But in this particular case, I think that the greater peril comes from the left rather than from the right. And so, I mean, I think bon voyage. I wish that uh, uh, Barr was correct. do I favor all the policies that are being involved in these cases? I suspect I do not, uh, but it seems to me that the political resolution is needed. Unilateral decisions by particular states should not be allowed to resist it, just the way unilateral decisions, as in the gun-type cases in Virginia, of given counties that they don't want to respect the law should not be able to overcome uh, what the state law has to be. It's essentially a quasi-succession movement, and I don't think it should be tolerated. Well, John, let me get you on the immigration point, but also let's tie it together to that other angle that Richard just raised. There has been this movement lately towards what are called Second Amendment sanctuaries. So you've seen this most acutely in Virginia, where a huge chunk of their counties 
have said that they would not enforce new state gun control laws that look like they're on the way. I think it's already passed the House there. So obviously different issues at work in these two cases. You're talking about counties essentially nullifying state law as opposed to cities nullifying federal law. And there's a constitutional right in play here, too, with the guns. But Compare and contrast these movements for us, John. I, I have to say, I think uh, Richard's wrong on this one, I'm afraid. Uh, not, not because I don't disagree with how he would like to design a perfect constitution, but I think the Supreme Court has already rejected this idea, and it's exactly in the context you raised, Troy, guns. So there is a case, it's called Prince versus United States, decided by the Supreme Court in the 90s. And in that case, the federal government then uh, was trying to increase gun control. And so they said, we would like the states to carry out background checks on people who are buying guns. And so state officials, you know, this is not even an internal state law. This is federal law. State officials said, no, well, we don't want to. You can't, you can't tell us what to do. And the Supreme Court agreed. The Supreme Court agreed with the state and local officials. They said the federal government cannot commandeer state officials to carry out federal law for them. It undermines a fundamental principle of accountability and responsibility. The federal government wants to carry out a policy, uh, and they, they have to do it themselves. Now, they can pay the states and cities if those states voluntarily agree to carry out federal policies, but they can't force them to. And so take a look at, I think the case with immigration is exactly the same. Uh, you know, I think California, for example, has no obligation to use its own state officers to carry out federal law. They can say, Now, they can't block them. The federal office, state officers can't say, uh, we will actually physically, uh, you know, interpose ourselves, you know, to recall what people talked about before the Civil War. You can't interpose yourselves between the federal government and chasing someone down who's wanted by the government. But state officers don't have to help them either. And so, well, look, as a Philadelphian, I think there's many, many good reasons to sue New Jersey for a great variety of things. <laughs> Let me get that on the table. But I don't, I think New Jersey, like California, is perfectly entitled to say, uh, we're going to step aside uh, when the federal government wants to pursue illegal aliens, but we're not going to help you find them or track them down either. And I think Prince protects the sovereignty of the states to do that. But this is much more than commandeering. They are doing active efforts to try and make sure that these people are hidden. I think, in effect, even if you cannot command them to do certain things, you can command them not to do certain things that make your searches more difficult. I don't think it's a case of commandeering when we say we're not going to let the SeaTac airport be used for federal planes. I think that's a case in which they're trying to block something which the federal government is normally entitled to do. And I don't think, in effect, that they're allowed to do that. I mean, your position is that they could be in complete and total resistance to everything that the federal government did. So is it an anti-commandeering state for somebody to pass? We will not let any person who wishes to enforce the immigration law have an office in uh, the state of Washington. You can't do that. Well, no, I don't. I, I don't. I don't you think you can't immobilize can, everybody. Yeah, I don't think the state can try to block you. Well, but that's what they're doing in these no, cases. The state doesn't have to help you because I think this case you know, is. What I mean by the, saying, in effect, that we're not going to let you see a driver's license—that's blocking. No, no. I I think the law here is this, the federal government wants the state of New Jersey to provide it with the information on location of illegal aliens, and I think the state can just say. I agree with you, Richard. I don't think the state can block federal officers. I don't think they could say you can't use our airport. 
which is probably federally regulated anyway. You can't, you know, that, that's the lesson McCullough versus Maryland. Well, you but, can't but, single but, out the government. But can I they do when they get somebody out? The federal, the state prisoners cannot say, look, we're getting you out. We want to protect you from these guys. Go to this particular address. They cannot do that. Well, so here, not, this is actually what happens in California, uh, which I think is illegal. This has they, nothing no, to do with commandeering. No, no, this no, has so, to do with states and active resistance. No, so no. Here's a state. Here's what California does, which I think is legal under Prince. So, California has people in jail, you know, who are also illegal aliens, and so the federal government wants all the states to report when those people will be released from prison and where so that ICE can go pick them up, right, when they leave the prison. And the states are just saying, no, we're not going to provide you with that information. We're not going to—we just don't have to tell you. I, I think that's legal under Prince. Uh, look, I, I, I don't regard supplying information like that in a kind of routine ministerial way as the same thing as asking people to go out and to do investigations for the government. Um, so I'm not at all sure that Prince would carry as far as it was. But in addition, uh, let's be clear about it. The same people who are prepared to say we don't have to give you information, if they, in fact, say a single word to the prisoners whom they release on how it is that they could reduce the probabilities of being apprehended by federal officials, uh, under any interpretation, Prince does not protect that. And the question is now, do you really want to believe uh, that the federal government, the state governments aren't doing that? So to give you another illustration, suppose they allow ACLU lawyers or immigration lawyers to come into the prison at the time of release so as to instruct these people. That seems to me to be obstruction. Oh, I don't think so. And also, oh, let me, let's let me give you an example with guns. Suppose the federal government decided it wanted to create a firearms database, so records of everyone who has a gun in the United States. So could they just say, okay, the states, we're not telling you to go out and create such a database. But if you already have records of who owns guns, who's bought them, right? Like California, you have to fill out all this paperwork to get a gun. Hand all that over to the federal government. It's just information which we're going to use to create a national gun registry database. We're not telling you to go out and collect information, but if you already have it, you must. We are ordering you to hand it over to us to amalgamate into a database. I'm not, I don't think that's constitutional, but I think you would think it is. I think it probably is. Suppose we just change it a little bit. Is what happens, we know you have the database, and we don't want you to turn it over, but we don't want you to block our access to it. So we now have the codes to enter it. You can't change the codes. Um, I do think, in fact, that level of cooperation in the enforcement of the federal laws is not beyond it. I think the line that I would draw is when you're asking them to engage in active, independent efforts at their own expenditures to do things. But if you're asking them to stand aside or to do things that make no particular financial cost because of the effort to frustrate federal policy, uh, I think preemption is a kind of a balancing issue. And the state interest in terms of its preservation of resources is trivial, uh, unlike the situation that you had in Prince, and I don't think that they uh, should be able to do it. Let me say this. I'm perfectly clear that this stuff is not fully settled by Prince um, under these circumstances. I think it's a much more complicated type analysis that you're going to need, but in general, I think with respect to things that are exclusive federal functions, uh, the states, are, they, they may not be able to commit financial resources to it, uh, but I think passive resistance um, is 
is something which they're not allowed to engage in under these circumstances. Obstruction is certainly something that they're not allowed to engage in. And if it turns out that what you're requesting of them is some trivial action in terms of its direct cause that they don't like because of the political consequences, I think that's a political battle. And I don't think that we should allow a situation to exist where some states will cooperate and other states will not. I think that's a situation where you want some degree of uniform control. Okay, I don't want to cut this debate short, but there's a very important final question that we have to get to today. So in recent months, there's been this big scandal in Major League Baseball that the Houston Astros, who've been in two of the last three World Series, won one of them, were revealed to have been using a sign-stealing system where they would tip off their batters to which pitches were coming. The league brought down some pretty heavy sanctions. They suspended their manager and their GM for a year immediately after which the team just went and fired both of them. And there was a pitcher during this stint, a guy named Mike Bolsinger. He was playing for the Toronto Blue Jays at the time, poor bastard. Uh, He comes into a game in a relief effort and just gets torched by the Astros, gives up four earned runs, four hits, three walks, and a home run in a third of an inning. And and this is, in practical terms, the end of his career. He he gets sent to the minors immediately thereafter, can't get re-signed after that year, ends up playing in Japan for a couple of years. Now he's back stateside trying to find a job. He's not signed with anybody. And so he has now filed a lawsuit against the Astros seeking damages for the opportunities he said it, it cost him because the Astros were employing these cheating techniques at the time. Richard, does this guy have any shot on this suit? Amazingly enough, I think he probably does. Um, I haven't thought about no this. way, really. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, essentially, what's going on is what they have done is engaged in a systematic acts which have made him look far worse than he really is. Uh, this is fraudulent kind of conduct, and when you depreciate the value of somebody by giving false information about their abilities, um, interference with advantageous well, relationships. He, he clearly sucks. Well, no, that's the fact <laughs> question. If it turns Turns out, you know, you look at this. I mean, he was not he, doing well prior to this, to be clear. Well, that, not this that- uh, look, this is fine. Uh, he had to play to, in Japan. Well, I didn't say this. I mean, I'm just saying in terms of it being a cause of action, if this were the decisive loan feature the way you described it, the difficulties you're going to have with the case come from what you just added in after you stated the hypothetical, which is he had a bad record beforehand, and there were other independent grounds not to do this. Um, and I think under those circumstances, it's very unlikely that he would be able to win because of the founding causal factors in this particular case. Uh, But if the issue is uh, simply, well, let's do this probabilistically, is there any way in which what the Astros did would improve his scores or skills? No. And so what we might want to say is, look, he maybe he lost $10 million because he didn't do very well. Maybe $500,000 of it is attributable to what the Astros did. I mean, what's really going to happen in this particular case is they only went after top management. Uh, the players who've complied on this are, are basically, they don't have to give back their World Series monies or anything of the sort. I think that the uh, effect of this scandal is going to remain for a very long period of time. And I think, for example, let's just give you another thing. Suppose you won a batting championship and you got 20 points by virtue of the fact that somebody was stealing sign. Do we want to take that from you or not? I mean, this is, I think, extremely serious in what they have done. It, as we say, it's like the Black Sox scandal of 1919. It's even worse because it's not three or four guys betting on games. This is an entire team essentially 
subverting the rules in an effort to get uh, inflated statistics and real advantage and then try to try to wash their hands of it. And I think, in effect, you're going to see more and more kinds of situations and more and more people are going to be forced to uh, recant or to do things. I've never seen anything like this, but my view is every single batting record uh, that the Astros have is tainted by virtue of what they've done. John, I'm surprised that you're coming in so hot against this guy, because I would think you'd be looking for this suit to lay the precedent for the, the Phillies to just sue over the last decade. <laughs> hundred years. What are you talking about? <laughs> Wait a second. They won a World Series years. in the hands. Look, I still remember. John, do you remember the 1950 World Series when my Yankees beat you? Why would he remember that? Because he wasn't. I don't believe professional baseball was played back then. (laughs) Oh, come on. At least not by the Phillies. And remember, they only won because they beat the Dodgers on the last game of the season. Yeah, but I did see the 1980 and then the 2000. Was it six they won? Mm-hmm. So both of them have been in my lifetime. I've witnessed it. I think before then they never won, right? So, but look, I, I just I think I just don't think you could bring a suit because there's no limiting principle to it. I think that's sort of what Richard's suggesting is: does every pitcher who passed, uh, I'm sorry, who every pitcher who pitched to Barry Bonds and uh, oh, what was they Sosa and McGuire, all those yeah. guys who are using, uh, you know, drugs to enhance their performance? Do they have a right to sue? I mean, that's I think that's why you know in a game you really can't allow these kinds of lawsuits. The regulation has to come from within the profession, not from the legal system, because you could break the whole the whole game could break down. If you, you, certainly, you can't change the game. Disputes. The question is, can you, you can change the records, I agree. Can you give damages without altering the game? Not so clear to me that you cannot do this. Um, in fact, one of the big issues are when you have famous cases in basketball where somebody levels somebody else or in football um, and it's in violation of the rules of the game, generally speaking, you're allowed to bring a tort action for the loss of your career. And the difference between that case and this case is the causation is perfectly clear, whereas in the case you're giving, it's really sort of muddled. Uh, but let me put it to this way. Suppose somebody goes to the baseball people and says, look, internally you've got to police this game. Uh, do you really think that all these guys should continue to have batting championships and so forth? They had contracts with incentive clauses in them. Should they be able to get the increases because they hit over 320 or had 100 RBIs and so on? Uh, dealing with systematic fraud like that, I think you set all the presumptions against the people who engaged in those kinds of practices. All right, gentlemen, that's going to have to do it. My thanks to you both and to our producer, Scott Immergut. Thanks, of course, to our great listeners, as well as our merely adequate ones. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. This was fun. Yeah, that was good. That's good. <laughs> well, we do have disagreements, John. I think. No, no, I. I but I'm surprised when we disagree. I'm always surprised because I always thought you would see the light. Well, I, I, I'm a man yeah, was a born show. and bathed in.
in darkness, I think. Is, born and bathed uh, in, <laughs> in darkness. Wow. This sounds like a Korean movie. No, 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 I, 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 I think like what, the element that I think.